with you. I'd invite you to open them with me once again uh, this morning. This morning I'm going to ask you if you would open your Bibles to the book of John, the very end of chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 53. As you regulars know, we are about halfway through our study of the book of Judges, a heavy, important study that we have been, I guess, about eight or nine weeks in earlier this summer. But as you can see this morning, we are taking uh, another week off. I say another week because last week with me out of town, uh, Barry stepped in and opened uh, this book with you, the book of John. And as I came back this week from being out of town and, and uh, went online to listen to Barry's sermon, my heart was drawn in that story to this story to this story that we're going to look at this morning. And so I decided to extend our detour from the book of Judges yet another week, and I know that won't pain some of you. Uh, That will be a welcome relief from the nine-minute Scripture reading or whatever it was last time we were there. This story, John chapter 8, is one of my absolute favorite stories in the Gospels, and that's probably why my heart was drawn here. Some of you old-timers might remember we have looked at this story before. Years and years ago, we opened and looked at this story. I'm sure you remember that well, but I'm actually guessing that you don't remember that at all. But it's one of my favorite stories, and I guess where I ought to begin, where we need to begin, before I even read this story is with the fact that this is a disputed favorite, right? Look at your Bibles with me. It's got this big old brackets in your Bibles, right? The earliest manuscripts do not include. Oh, geez, what does that mean? We can spend a lot of time getting in the weeds of of textual criticism. I don't want to do that this morning. I want to just say this. Yes, the earliest manuscripts do not include this story. But there wasn't enough evidence to not include it at all in your Bibles. And I actually think that this story fits quite nicely in the Gospel of John And in what John was trying to do when he wrote his account of the life and death and resurrection of of Jesus. But even if many of the scholars are right, and this wasn't a part of John's original gospel, I think we can say with certainty that the account is still true. Why do I say that? Well, not only does it fit within the pattern of the book, the Gospel of John, but it's completely in line with Jesus' character, and it's a story that church history tells us was recounted by our early church fathers. It's a true story of the going-ons of our Savior when He was on earth. And so I invite you to listen with me as I read 
this story of Jesus. If you would, and if you are able, if you are willing, stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7, verse 53, down through verse 11 of John chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Justice. We want justice. That's a cry that we hear a lot these days. We see it a lot on social media if you're into that type of thing. Hashtag justice for you fill in the blank. There have been dozens of them, dozens of social cries for justice. Justice for our immigrants. Justice for our president. We want the law so often to come down and to come down hard. See, the desire for justice is something that's it's hardwired into our beings. We see it at a very early age in our own kids, as our kids say, it's not fair, right? They want justice. So we come to this story, the story of Jesus. It's that issue of justice that I think is at the heart of the story. There's a lot that we could be gleaned. There's a lot that can be gleaned from this story this morning, and I don't presume to know with your experiences and your uniqueness what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing in you this morning. 
But as we think about this story, as I explain it to you, I want to do so around two truths that guide us. And the first one is this. True justice, true justice demands more than we can handle. True justice demands more than you and I can handle. This is a story that more than anything, I think, exposes our hearts and reveals our Savior. And both of those things are a good thing. Jack Nicholson was, has famous, famously yelled in a courtroom scene in a movie called A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. Remember that? Jesus in this story, in a much gentler way, says the same thing. You can't handle the truth. True justice demands more than you can give. Let me explain. Jesus' ministry at this point is in full swing. The Jews are coming to him. His popularity is huge. They're coming to the healer to be healed. They're coming to the prophet to be, to be told truth. Yet alongside that popularity among the Jewish populace, Jesus has attracted attention and he has caught the disdain of those in authority who see him as a threat to their own authority and to their own power. And, and these are the supposed good guys in the life of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the men who are protectors of justice, specifically as it pertains to God's revealed law. So these men come to Jesus as he is on the Mount of Olives teaching, and they come to Jesus with a matter needing justice. But John gives us the spoiler. He, he, he lifts back the curtain a little bit and gives us a peek in verse 6 when he says, they actually said this to test him that they might bring a charge against him. Those on the hillside didn't hear that, but we hear that. We hear their intentions going in, but they come, and they come with this issue of justice that really wasn't an issue of justice at all. They weren't so concerned about this woman and about her supposed immoral act. They were after Jesus. It was Jesus that had the target on his back. And so with their sights on Jesus, they bring this woman, apparently fresh from the arms of sin, and they say to her, or they say to Jesus rather, remember what the law says. I'll read it to you. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So here she is, Jesus. What are you going to do? It's a dilemma, or it appears to be. If he lets this woman go, what does he do? He tramples on the law of God. He disregards the law of God. Oh, they'd love it if he did that. 
That would give them a case to accuse him and to charge him. But if he respects the law, then he tramples the woman. Well, that wouldn't be so bad either. I mean, Jesus has gained a reputation for being this compassionate Savior who eats with tax collectors, who loves the prostitutes. Now his reputation would be, if he tramples this woman with the law, his reputation will be, yeah, come to Jesus. You might get stoned for your past, but you could give it a try. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Maybe his popularity points would plummet and he would just disappear and be heard from no more. What Jesus does is neither. He doesn't trample the law. He doesn't trample the woman. He actually tramples them by showing that true justice is more than they can handle. You see, the Pharisees were a certain type of people. They loved the law. More than that, they prided themselves on adherence to the law of God. And yet Jesus came. His very purpose in coming to earth is because the law couldn't save them. It never would be able to save them. And so He exposes them. This is not an open and, and shut case that they, begin, that they bring to Jesus. This is, this is a case that is complex. This is a case that is riddled with, with holes. First of all, it was close to impossible for the law stated that two witnesses had to catch people in the act. Not in a compromising position, not coming out of the house one morning, but in the act. And the fact that they have nabbed this woman and have caught her in the act almost certainly shows that this was a setup, that this was probably entrapment. What about the laws against that? To be a legal witness, you can't be party to the crime in any way. And oh yeah, where's the man? (laughs) Where's the man in this story? Leviticus 20 says both are to be executed. And Jesus, who is particularly concerned about the plight of women in this culture, in this patriarchal culture, is not going to have them just bring one party, and leave the other behind. This whole thing is illegitimate. The Jews weren't even allowed under Roman law. They're under Roman rule. They're not allowed to execute. The Romans did that. That's why Jesus was handed over to the Romans, because the Jews couldn't do it themselves. The whole thing is a farce, and Jesus knows all this. This isn't justice. This is injustice. And yet here are the keepers, the supposed keepers of justice, twisting things for their own end, thinking they are the just ones. And Jesus says, true justice is more than you guys can handle. You do not want justice. How does he do it? He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone 
at her. In Old Testament law, the witnesses of a crime were obligated to begin the execution, to throw the first stone. So in essence, Jesus says, go ahead. Go ahead and stone her as long as you meet the requirements for God's law. As long as you, brothers, are above board in all things, particularly in this situation that you've brought before me. They're stunned. His word pierces their hearts because they know they're not clean. They know they're guilty and their consciences are accused and so slowly they just start to disperse. Jesus is more concerned about their judgmental self-righteousness than he is about this woman's sin of adultery. It's an amazing story. And what can we learn from it? Well, first of all, I think it ought to prick our hearts a bit this morning. Certainly pricks mine. How easily I can feel justified in my own actions, judgmental towards others in my own self-righteousness. Quick to stone, at least in my heart, We love justice, but we don't want justice in regards to ourselves. That's for certain. I think the other thing that I want us to see right out of the gate is what this shows us about Jesus. The picture that this paints of our Savior. The compassion the unbelievable grace extended to those who are least worthy, to those who are caught red-handed. I'm going to talk in a minute about the, the theological significance, I think, of Jesus writing in the ground, in the sand. But for now, I want you to just feel, as you have this picture in your mind, I want you to feel the relational impact of those actions, those curious actions of Jesus. This woman has been dragged out of a home who knows how she's dressed, who knows how she's covered up. She's been dragged into the middle of this crowd with a, by a group of angry men, and there she stands with the eyes of all those around her just boring into her. And and where does the gaze suddenly go? It goes down. It goes to the ground. It goes away from her. And in his compassion, Jesus makes himself the focal point. And that's the segue to the second thing that I want us to see from this passage, and it's this. In Jesus... Justice and mercy perfectly meet. In Jesus, justice and mercy perfectly meet. You see, this passage isn't about a woman who doesn't get what she deserves or a bunch of religious leaders who do get what they deserve. It's about how those things show us 
Jesus. See, one of the things we're not studying the book of John, but if we were, if we were walking through it chapter by chapter, one of the things that you would see by the time we get to this chapter, chapter 8, is you see that John, throughout his gospel, has been comparing Jesus to Moses. And that's why it took us to Exodus 34 earlier in the service. John wants his readers, his Jewish readers, to understand that Jesus is the divine one sent from God and God Himself. And so, yes, He fills the gospel as the other gospel writers do with all these incredible, miraculous signs of Jesus that show and prove His deity and His power. But dispersed through all of that and through Jesus' own teaching about who He is, we see John comparing Jesus to Moses. Moses, this pillar of Jewish faith, right? You don't even have to be a Christian to know who Moses is. You just have to know who Charlton Heston is, and then you know who Moses is. Moses, the receiver of God's law, is being trumped in the book of John by Jesus, the giver of God's law. The word Himself. Let me give you a few of these references. John 1, 17, we find the first mention of Moses. John writes, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verse 46, we have Jesus comparing his ministry to that of Moses, saying he's a fulfillment of what Moses wrote. Jesus chides the Jews for their unbelief, and he says, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hearts are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And in the chapter before this chapter that we're in today, John 7 19, Jesus asks the crowd at the temple, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? When they ask who is trying to kill him, he responds, I did one miracle. You all are astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Okay, so what is, what's going on? Over and over again, John is comparing Jesus to Moses. Over and over again, John is using Jesus' ministry to trump the ministry of Moses. And he's doing it around the subject of the law, justice. So what does that have to do with John chapter 8? Moses isn't mentioned here, right? Well, it's not Moses' name that I want us to think about. It's this. It's Jesus' finger. Jesus does something here that is recorded nowhere else in the New Testament. He, He writes... Jesus stooped down with his finger, and he wrote something in the ground. We do not know what he wrote. 
in one sense, it doesn't matter what he wrote. We just know that he writes. And he writes with his finger. Now, why does John make a point of saying finger? Is he just being descriptive so we don't imagine Jesus holding a stick like some of our kids do as they write on the beach? Or is he making a point by using that word? I actually think it's the latter. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find the word translated as finger mentioned in only two contexts. The first context is a priestly context, eight times in Leviticus, and once in Exodus, it's used to describe the priests and their actions. But more significant are the other two times it's used. In Exodus 31, we read this. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave them the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. You see, it's that phrase, the finger of God. It had significance in the ear of a Jew. They remembered. They remembered. It described the intervention of the almighty transcendent creator who descended upon that holy mountain, Mount Sinai, to communicate with his people. It describes the vehicle by which the character of God was reflected to a people that were far from that character. And now John uses that same phrase, that same language, that same image to describe the finger of Jesus, the new Moses, communicating in the ground before his chosen nation. He is the lawgiver. Moses was merely a messenger. Jesus is the author. The law brought condemnation, but the lawgiver brings salvation. We don't know what he wrote. Boy, I wish I knew what he wrote. But we know that in writing... He was communicating something powerful, even as he deflected the gaze away from the shamed. In Jesus, justice and mercy perfectly meet. Well, the finger of God, that's the justice, right? The writing of the law, the giving of the law, the lawgiver. What about this mercy? How can Jesus seemingly disregard the law, and let this woman go. Yeah, there are problems, but maybe she was framed. But if she did indeed commit adultery, which Jesus seems to say she is guilty, go and sin no more. How does Jesus do that? Jesus does that because he's the lawgiver who says, yes, before God you are guilty, but I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. Jesus doesn't even regard or disregard the spirit of the law. This woman doesn't walk away over a technicality. 
She walks away because of grace. Because Jesus is going to be condemned for her. And that's how you and I walk away this morning. Because of mercy and grace, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. If you believe this, then Jesus' words to you this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter what you stand accused of, are the same. I don't condemn you because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great story. So I'll end here. Who, who are you like this morning in the story? Are you like the crowd who stood watching this whole thing interested in the drama, but then just returned to their lives and soon forgot about what went on here. Maybe you're like the leaders. I certainly feel that to some extent in my own heart, judgmental, prideful, and yet humbled and ashamed at the pride of my own accomplishments. The best person to be in this story is the woman herself. The sinful woman who came to Jesus humiliated but left forever changed, forgiven and restored and free to live a life of gratitude. That's, that's the gospel. And that's full and free and for you and I this morning. Whatever you've done, there's grace enough because he was condemned for you. In Jesus, truth, justice, mercy, and grace perfectly meet. John Newton, we've heard his story before. John Newton, the slave trader who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. He also wrote another hymn we sing. We're going to sing it in just a moment. Let us love and sing in wonder. And one of these verses that we're going to sing, let us wonder grace and justice. Join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Let's pray.